That is the main thing that people have to learn. Like whether you home run the first deal, whether you buy an average deal or whether you overpay a little bit, that's never going to change your life other than just getting out there, starting and kind of seeing where this whole thing takes you. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Paris Gosia. How are you, buddy? Good, man. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. I'm excited to get into your story today. For people listening, Ferris has got a small portfolio. He's a beginning investor, just starting out here at what was it, 497 units, $110,000 a monthly cash flow at a 28 years old. Yeah, man. Everyone's got to start somewhere. So congratulations yeah. on starting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, man. So uh, let's get started. Let's back it up a bit because I know that you're also a commercial broker, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Awesome. Take us back, man. What got you started into all of this? And then let's just fast track all the way through your investing career here. Yeah, absolutely. So it was about four and a half years ago now. I graduated five and a half years ago, stepped into tennis coaching. I came here on a scholarship to U of I, University of Illinois, played tennis. Graduated, went into tennis coaching, was coaching 60 to 80 hours a week, working a lot of hours, saving up a lot of money, but I just felt there was something else out there um, that could be a better option, obviously, than working 60 to 80 hours a week on someone else's schedule, someone else's timeline. You have to show up when you need to be there. So dabbled at looking at some stock options trading. I had a Series 7 and a Series 4 license. Didn't enjoy that too much. Then I started to look at real estate investing. My parents back home in England actually had five houses that they hired on about 10 years ago, all paid off in cash. So they said, hey, why don't you try this? So I was looking around some houses. There was one that was listed. This was November 2018. I closed it, but it was listed August 2018. It was about 100K, Munster, Indiana, and looked like it would rent for about 1,200 a month. So I just went under contract, didn't know much about renting it out, didn't know much about the multifamily business, single family business. Um, so got with a local broker. They wrote up the offer, got it under contract, as sometimes first investors do. You get the inspection report back and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, that door doesn't close properly. This toilet doesn't flush very well. You get real nervous about very small items. And I was like, hey, I really don't want this house anymore. Can you get me out of this one? She's like, you're under contract with earnest money, but we can ask them to fix it all. I don't think they will. So she asked them to fix it all. They actually ended up fixing it all. So I was like, man, I got to buy this now. Ended up buying it and it actually ended up being the best thing that I would do. Put it on Zillow when I closed it. And this is kind of where my life changed was when the tenant drove to where I was coaching, which was an hour away, and handed me a check for $1,200 for the first month's rent. And I was looking at it for, probably for two minutes, just standing outside. And I was like, what did I do to get them to hand me this check? And obviously, I bought the building. But still, it's a lot easier than walking back in there to coach another six, seven hours that day. Of, I didn't really enjoy it that much, the coaching, when especially when kids don't want to be top 100 of all kind of professionals. So... Yeah. Uh, that was the start of my real estate investing career from there. Bought a duplex that same year, early the next year, bought a four unit, and then just kind of scaled from there in terms of buying piece by piece larger stuff, basically. So your uh, investing is essentially what got you into the broker side is because of your interest in it? 
Yeah, exactly. So I started out investing. I hit about 40 units and I met my brokering partner here in Northwest Indiana, Tarek. And he was like, hey, man, you cold call a lot to buy stuff, but you don't buy it all because some of the deals just don't work for you. You don't have the money. We should just broker it to other people. And I really didn't want to be a broker. The only reason I got my license was to maybe make a commission on something I buy that's on the market. And he was like, hey, we should just get into this, start selling them. And we made, I think that week, a bunch of cold calls and we ended up selling like five, four units that week. And I was like, yeah, this works out pretty well, actually. So then we grew that side of the business, which is completely separate to what I do in terms of a little, a little bit separate. Obviously, I cold call the deals great and it's in my area and I have the cash at that time, I'll take it. If not, then we have a ton of people and obviously multifamily is a very hot sector right now. So a lot of people looking for that product. So we'll charge a commission on it and they'll take it and, and take down the deal. So how much were you making as a tennis coach? As a tennis coach, I was probably making around 150 to 200,000, I would say, if I was going to put in 60 to 80 hour weeks the whole year. So it's still a pretty okay. lucrative career for most people. Yeah, I can I completely believe that because my girlfriend, she was from Brazil and she was a national tennis player in Brazil. And okay. so she came and did the exact same thing probably that you did where she got a full ride scholarship yep. and then came to America for that, for college, for Kennesaw State University. So yeah. I've told her, so now I can show her this episode and be like, yo, get back out there and swing the racket, girl. So for that income though, was that W-2 or was that 1099? And it's so long. No, I'm, it was W-2 income. So I mean, that made it, you a little bit more loanable. Yes, correct. That made me real loanable. That helped out. And obviously, we put some of those initial ones under my wife's name too. But that made me pretty loanable right off the bat. I did play professional for about a year after I graduated. So I got to about 400 in the world, but it just wasn't for me. I know you love traveling, Brian. I wasn't about it. I just, yeah, yeah it was. And it's a different type of travel, right? I had to play a tennis tournament, not to do anything really that fun. So just, I got tired of it pretty quickly and then went into coaching. Nice. So you're a tennis coach. You figure out real estate for the first time because your parents have a couple of houses. So you had a bit of exposure. You dive into the first deal blindly and you just figure it out. And then that's where your epiphany happens. So walk us through some of the key leverage points that happened between that first purchase and you scaling up to that 40 units, because what the hell? (laughs) So honestly... I think I, I had a decent amount of money saved up going into purchase number one. In a hundred K house, you're talking about putting twenty K down. And every unit out here, even on the multifamily side back then, was probably around eighty K a door. So even a four unit, I picked one up for two fifty with some seller yeah. credits in there. I'm putting down maybe forty K. So I think with the money I saved up, plus between me and my wife, we're making about three hundred plus then some rents coming in here and there. I think that helped over the course of it was two years I did hit that, like a year and a half, that 40 unit mark, just saving money, investing back in it, in the business. We're real frugal. So we actually shared a car. She hated me for this, but one person was going somewhere on the weekend. The other one was sitting in the house and that's we're going together. So we were sharing a car. I was a little crazy with the money. I would unplug the microwave at night. Now I understand it's just completely doesn't matter. But yeah, I took got a little obsessive with it, but I just wanted to as fast as I could replace my income from tennis with the real estate. So. So what do you think your savings rate was? Probably like 70% plus at 200? Yeah. Or 300, yeah, was, I guess? Yeah, it was really high. Basically, federal taxes, state taxes, some food, gas, and that's about it. Yeah. So what were you doing for your own personal living situation? We were living in a condo, which I still own, and rent out in Oswego. It was about 100 and... What did I buy it for? 135000 Nice. Okay. 
Cool. So you get up to you get up to your 40 units. Let's break down those. So you said you bought the single family, then you bought a couple of more single families and some multi. What was yeah, your biggest so, multifamily purchase up to making that 40? Yeah, up to the 40. The biggest one was a four unit. So I so initially it was a single family home duplex, then a four units so that put me at seven back to single family home, which was eight. And then I bought a few four units in a row and then a couple more duplex and single family sprinkled in there. And are these all on market or some of these off market? And were you starting to dabble into the acquisition strategy at that point? This is actually a funny story to bring this up. It's so funny how you go through a lot of stuff and you forget some of the stories that came along the way. So that's why um, we do it. Yeah, I hit uh, hit seven units, closed on that for January 2019, and nothing really was popping up on the market for three, four months. Single family home popped up. I bought that and another stretch of nothing really popping up. So this isn't going to work for me. I'm sitting here. I bought one house this year. So I think it was, yeah, around 2019, the summer, I started cold calling a bunch of people. I was looking on Zillow Rentals, contacting people, and I had done it for about a month and a half and nothing was really working. And I called this uh, very nice lady who lived in Florida. It was like, 10 p.m. my time. So it must have been midnight there. I think I called him and texted. <laughs> I was like, hey, would you sell me this condo in Highlands? She's like, got 11 of them. And we would consider it maybe for a million plus. At the time, I didn't have the money, but they didn't really want to sell them. But she was like, I do have this one house in Munster I would sell. And it was actually right in the neck of the woods where I was buying all my houses at the time. I had one little corner where I purchased a bunch of houses. I was like, yeah, I'll take that. It was probably at the time only worth 102, but I was so pumped that someone was like, gonna maybe sell me something off market. I offered a 110. I was like, I'll do $10,000 earnest money. I don't need to see the place. <laughs> so it ended up, I actually overpaid for it. It worked out well. The tenant's been there paying 1250 for the last three years. Now it's probably worth like 150 with the whole getting lucky a little bit with COVID. But just funny that I overpaid for that first off-market deal. And the, a lot you hear now is, oh, off-market, I want a great deal or this deal. And it's like the first one I ever bought was probably, it didn't even appraise. And I still paid the gap. I was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll split this appraisal gap with you. <laughs> she would have had to sell it still. So it's just kind of funny how I like really overcooked it initially, but then I learned how to negotiate obviously a lot better. I think that's important because it really doesn't freaking matter in the beginning. What matters is just starting, right? Correct. Exactly. What matters is just starting. That is the main thing that people have to learn. Like whether you're a home run the first deal, whether you buy an average deal, or whether you overpay a little bit, that's never going to change your life other than just getting out there, starting and kind of seeing where this whole thing takes you. So that, that's really key for people. I always see people, oh, am I overpaying for this? No, no one knows really where the market's going to take you in a year, two years, four years. So really just starting and obviously understanding the business enough to operate the building or the single family home to the point where you're not clueless. But really starting it, getting in it, learning the business is for me and was the most important thing. So what was your split of time between tennis and between this? Because I know a lot of people's problems is whenever they have whatever their W-2 is, they can maybe handle like doing one a year or two a year or three a year or six a year and they stack and double each year. How yeah. much of your focus was split between the tennis and then, or did you start like delegating that or systematizing that to be able to spend more of your energy and effort on acquisition for real estate? So it's interesting because obviously tennis coaching was more, 2 to 10 p.m. on weekends. Sure. So I would basically wake up at 8, cold call until 1 typically, unless I had some type of lesson in the morning. And then I would do tennis from 2 to 10. So effectively, now I look back, I was working a lot. It was stuff that I enjoyed doing. So it wasn't too much work. And also, obviously, tennis helps where it's not an office job where things are immediate. If I get a text, I need to make a quick phone call. 
I can just jump out of the group for five seconds, make a call, make a text to handyman, plumber, that kind of stuff. And obviously leasings and showings I would do on the weekends when that was needed. It was, I wouldn't say there was a, a lot of people wouldn't think that was a happy equilibrium of how much time and effort I was putting in. But for me, I was completely fine with it because the way I looked at it was the more time I put in now, like the, like a huge amount of effort, then I can slowly obviously back off maybe the tennis quicker than, Hey, I'm just going to kind of slowly and average this out over the next five years, but you're still going to have five to 10 more years of a W2. So it just depends how you look at it. Why'd you enjoy cold calling? To me, I see every cold call as just a brand new opportunity. It's been very interesting that some of my best friends have been through a cold call. Some very good clients of mine for buildings have been through a cold call, obviously, because you call them, they don't want to sell, but they're intrigued. You call them, you grab some lunch. They own a lot of buildings. I think that is the, and I've told a few other people, this: the best way in your area, if you want to get into real estate, to network with higher level people than yourself. Because that guy you call with a few hundred units, if you're trying to buy his 10 unit building that he bought years ago, he knows probably the best commercial lender that you could talk to. Like he's going to fast track you right to that spot, right? He knows, hey, this is how you should structure this deal. This is what you should do with this and that. And so networking with those people, in my opinion, fast tracked me to where I got to just by having a group of, I would say, great friends around me who owned anywhere from 200 to 1500 units. How do you think you differentiated yourself on these cold calls away from like all of the wholesalers that annoy people right now? And I'm not saying that as a general statement for people that are listening that may be wholesalers, but there's a lot of people that do it the wrong way and piss people off. They do it the completely wrong way. You get the mailer in in the mail, you get the the text that's an automated robot text that you have to call the line back and leave a message. You get them asking, hey, what, so what do you rent that for? And they offer you a complete low ball, even if you had any sense of the market, you know, it's a low ball. So first thing you get on the phone call is you introduce yourself, obviously. They want to know who you are, why you're calling. And then you tell them, I want to give you a strong offer on your building. I like the building and I want to give you a strong offer. Now, whether the number that comes out of your mouth is a strong offer or not is a different story. But <laughs> you've already qualified the statement that's going to be a strong offer. And Honestly, at the time, they weren't complete lowballs. Like I, I wasn't looking to, I just got a text the other day. My building's worth 3.4 million. He offered me 1.5 to two. It's If you could make 1.4 million from every few cold calls you make, it would be ridiculous, right? So if it's worth 3.4, how about you're offering maybe like 2.93 and see where that discussion takes you with, hey, this is going to be an easy transaction off market. I'm not going to retrade you. There's no broker's fees. We'll close it quick. To some people, they have a lot of buildings of that size not losing, maybe giving away that 200 for the peace of mind is good enough for them. And then maybe there's some rent increases this, you capture that arbitrage of that too. So then you end up saying, okay, I bought it for two nine. It was worth three, four. I increased the rents. Now it's worth three, eight. Okay. That's a win in six months time talking on a larger scale. So to me, I differentiated just by saying those words, I'll give you a strong offer and actually coming in a lot closer to what it's worth and knowing the market than a lot of these wholesales. Because when someone asks me, what are the rents? You clearly have no idea what the market is. I'll always go in and say, hey, I, I assume that two beds 1200. And they'll be like, yeah, it's 1150. I'm like, I assume it's boiler heat and you guys paid it's about 3000 a year. Then they're like, oh yeah, this guy really knows what he's doing. He operates here. So let me work with him. Whereas the wholesaler comes in and goes, what's your expenses? What's your income? Okay, let me look at that for a day and I'll get back with you for an offer. Like clearly what's coming, just a complete lowball. Right. I mm-hmm. think for me, that helped me differentiate myself on the calls and actually gain people's trusts. Wholesaling works. I'm not going to say it doesn't work, especially when 
you're trying to buy a house from someone where there's been an unfortunate family situation or they just really don't know the market, but maybe in a duplex for you. But when you're trying to buy 50, 100 plus unit buildings, you're not going to, you're not going to fool that many people. So. Yeah. And that was insanely helpful. It's funny and it's cool because a lot of the times I do shows with people that have been on a lot of podcasts. And so they've got a, like a very rehearsed story to what, what that they tell on yeah. every show. So it's fun to be able to have you on here and I can, I could be able to poke and prod you. And then you're just like, Oh yeah. I haven't even thought about this in the last four years, but this is the key to my success. It's the same thing with me. Yeah. Yeah. That is the great point. Yeah. I haven't really thought back to, cause I always look at it now and everything seems so simple. Right? Mm-hmm. I was thinking yeah. about this morning, I'm looking back at the time where like I'm there with a different tenant at my other tenant's house like putting in a, a, above the stove microwave, having no idea what I'm doing because I don't know any handyman who wouldn't charge me like 200 bucks. I'm like, thanks, man. I'll take 40 bucks off the rent next month. So coming from that to now like a full operation, a full staff of people, but it's just a different company. It's just interesting to look back because I, and I was this morning, obviously I was coming on here with you to think, wow, I, it has come a long way since then. And just the differences between now and then. So it was interesting to think about it. Yeah. And I love the psychology because it applies to everything that you do in life. Like how you do the small things is how you do the big things. And so I can take something like that from you to where you were having a love of cold calling, which most people don't have a love of cold calling. That's their hangup. And that's why they don't take action is they can't handle levels of rejection. And then also if they do the phone calls, they don't know how to differentiate, differentiate themselves to be that person that can develop a relationship off of the cold call as opposed to just getting click hung up. So that was yep. huge. Yep. So walk us through, so you get up to your 40 units. So what happened? What switch did you flip to be able to go from an investor to a business owner? That's a good question. I'm going to backpedal a little bit there, just back on those cold calls a little bit and not so much the cold calls, just kind of differentiating it. So when you have a W2 job, anyone listening to this, and just starting again, going back to that as the main point, if just grabbing the buildings and having those cash flowing to you will give you a lot more time to make other decisions. And I think that's the key thing that people always think, oh, I want to buy 30, 40 units, but they all need to be home runs. Not necessarily because you're still having the W2, which you might not like, or it might make it take taking too much of your time to go and do a lot of other things. And that might be explosive growth. That might be family time, whatever it want, whatever you want it to be. So just being able to even in the beginning buy a bunch of places market value is not a bad thing because then you have time freedom to then go say, okay, now I do have 10 hours in my own time. Let me go do X, Y, Z over here. So I think that's, an, again, I think 60, 70 units maybe is that mark, but it goes from, let me just grab whatever I can at even market value works to give me my time back to then go and see, okay, what can I do now with all the time I have? So I think there's two mm. stages to a real estate business, and those are the kind of the two different stages. But good question on the 40 going from there to the next step. And I think the business step actually came when I hit about 120 was when I hired my first maintenance guy. Up to then, I was still a leasing agent. People were calling me. I was still using software that wasn't so great, but for, like it wasn't a tenant CRM, like building was fantastic. So the switch at 40 didn't happen. It was at 120, but I think the switch came... A little bit when I bought a 14 unit, and that was in 2020. That was a really good deal I picked up. I spoke to the guy a while back about it. He was on and off about selling it, but then he decided to. So that really helped me get into bigger stuff. So it was that year was a 14, a 28, and then a 30. And that 32 actually at the end of 2020, yeah, end of 2020 was really where the switch turned. I had called 
a guy with 110 units. And it just happened to be a few different buildings, 49, 11, 17, and 15. And I didn't have $12 million to buy the whole package. But Casual, I was, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I was, yeah, but I was like, uh, even to even for the down payment, I didn't have the 20% down. So I was like, but I'm going to get out there anyway. He told me, yeah, we're actually selling this whole thing right now. It's with a broker, but it's off market. But they ha- they didn't have an exclusive right to sell. It was like a, uh, I should know the term. It's only when they bring the buyer that they actually get paid. It was one okay. of those things. Yeah. So drove out there, looked at all the buildings. I had enough to buy like half the package. So one guy in my area, who's a great friend of mine now, probably one of my closest friends, he was looking to buy some multifamily. He might be a good person for you to speak to as well. He makes probably five to six million a year flipping houses and has bought... 500 units in one year. He's a beast, man. Dude, my life is my life's insane. Like I got a text from you and then I got a text this morning from another guy that was like, "Hey, I need you to introduce you to my friend that owns like this nine-figure chemical company." And yeah. I got another text and this guy was like, "Yeah, I'm 29 and you know, I've got like 50 million dollars of self-storage. I'd love to come on the podcast." And I'm like, "Yeah. Podcasting works, man." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, you get to meet a lot of great people, I'm sure. So, I kind I spoke to him and I said, "Hey, if you want to join me on this, you can take the 49 and the 11 and pay me a fee on that. And I'll buy the other half of this package. So that was the first time I'd been involved in a 110 unit transaction. And it just clicked that it was the exact same thing, just bigger numbers. There was nothing different about it. And if you're going to sell something on the brokering side, sell the most expensive thing you can. So it went from calling two to fours to sell those to let's just call everything hundred plus. I don't care how many units it is. We're going to call it and we're going to sell it. So that's when that kind of aspect of the business took off the brokering. And obviously this year, I think we've done about a hundred million of sales, just two of us, which is a start. I think it's pretty good for trying to get into that space. So so are you doing the brokering on top of the tennis coaching still at this point? Because the one hangup I'm trying to figure out is how you're still financing all of these because we have like in the beginning, yeah, you're saving money, but that gets you up to the hundred. Yeah. But it's like, how are you still doing like 20% down, like conventional? Are you doing seller finance? Are you doing kind of like any sub twos? What yeah, are you doing? So to once, I, once I hit the 40 units, it so happened that a lot of the deals I bought were actually pretty good deals. Um, like I bought a surprise. Four yeah. It, obviously lucky with COVID, but I, I also got the rents up and they ended up being very good deals. So for example, just one of the four units I bought was 250. It's probably worth 550. Another one of the four units I'm cash out refining that. Uh, cash out refinancing next week. I bought it for 350. It's probably going to hit like 600 or 620, he said, on the cash out refi. So I started to pull out some money from a couple of homes. And yeah, it's been, it worked out well on the smallest. What, uh, what market is this? Northwest Indiana. Oh, yeah, the Midwest, because now everyone's in this and everyone's pouring, pouring into there. Was that even a consideration at the beginning or did you just get started and then it just happened to work out? So it ended up randomly being i ended up being here for the first six months of coaching because i was privately coaching a family their son out here and i just happened to be in this area to be honest but it's real lucky because it has been and is one of the best real estate investing markets probably in the country in terms of what you're 35 minutes from chicago so you're basically a suburb of it just way better landlord laws way better taxes you list a house here for rent and it'll get 100 hits in three days it's crazy so the absorption oh rate yeah, I just closed 144 units two weeks ago that had a lot of operational efficiencies. They had 28 current vacancies with another 13 leaving. So it was like 41 to lease in 40 days. We've already leased like 26 out in 10 days. 
So let's back up a bit. So you're talking about, and I could say this because I do a lot of these podcasts with a lot of people like you. So you're talking about two completely different skill sets right now. So we had skill set one, which was just like the action taken to be able to acquire some units. And that was like an investor. And then now you've got you talking about operational efficiencies, deficiencies, how you can do tenant infill, do rent rolls, increase the NOI, all this stuff. So during this transition, walk us through that because that's part of the key transitions between becoming going from an investor to a business owner. So I'm curious between these two levels where you came to the realization, which was just like, oh, I can spend as much time buying a 300 unit and underwriting a 300 unit as I can doing like a 30 unit. It's the same time. I just need more money. Were there any coaches, were there mentors, were there people that you were going to for advice on how to do this and how to operate these properties? I'm assuming it's maybe the people that you were buying them from and communicating with from the cold calls? No, not necessarily. I've always kind of liked numbers and looking at that stuff. So I really wasn't asking anyone else their, their kind of opinions on where I can take buildings in terms of income and expense. I was just running them on based on what I can put down, obviously what the return is going to be, that sort of stuff. Where can I get the rents to? Where are the rents now? How much am I going to spend managing this in terms of my staff? So just kind of looking at all those numbers. And I think that's a good question on where do you go from investor to business? I think it's either if you have a culmination of units that is in excess of 150, if it's 150 single family homes, for example, like roughly right around there, you become then a business that needs staff. Or if you're buying something that's 100 plus, then you're immediately just buying a business. You're buying something that needs staff immediately. So it depends on where you're at in terms of that. But in terms of op- operationalizing them and kind of looking at that stuff, I re- from really just liking numbers, I don't know. So you just taught yourself from books, YouTube videos, courses, like... How did you teach yourself all this? I don't know. I looked at a lot of deals. I just look at a lot of deals. Like I'm just in a lot of deals. I think just being so immersed in kind of the real estate industry and what I do and where I'm at, I could just tell you what it's going to, what that building is going to do and where that should trade at pretty much instantly. And I'm sure some of this knowledge probably came from the brokerage side as well. Like, correct? Hey guys, what's up? It's Brian. I need your help. Just one second and the show's going to continue. But here's what I need. There are two ways that people find new podcasts to listen to. One is through word of mouth and the other is through ratings and reviews. My one ask of you guys is if you are finding value in this episode today, right now, please go and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe if you haven't already and send this episode to one or two people that you think would get value from it. Thanks in advance and let's get back to the episode. That goes hand in hand because I'm underwriting stuff before I call them, like I'm looking on CoStar, right? And I'm looking at, okay, the average rent here is 1200. You got a bacon about 8% lost the lease because they're pulling it from apartments.com. So you put that in there, you times it by the number of units, you're looking at a 60% expense ratio. So you're just doing all that real quick and you come to a certain number that you know makes sense based on some sales comps per door. You call them up off of or maybe a 5% off of that. And then you get the rent roll and it's like, yeah, this is what I expected. And you're just like a little under. So it goes really for any market in the nation a little bit. The coastal stuff, it's a little different because the per door just gets so much out there that I just, I don't understand the 300 to 500 per door, 2,500 to 4,500 a month rent. I'm not a big believer in that sort of stuff long-term, but the Midwest stuff where it's like a thousand to maybe 1,800 bucks per month rent, really, I don't know. You're just looking at the same thing over and over again. So you're just doing it just by doing it. Like you're just learning it from doing it. Like you weren't... Yeah, you weren't going and buying the book on sales or listening to the podcast on sales like you were just out there selling, essentially. 
Correct. Yeah. Just from doing it over and over again, I've just learned kind of where stuff's at. At what point do you think that hit? Do you think it was at that unit count that you keep talking about? Or was there like a process or a time where you specifically remember you being like, okay, like I've got this now. It's interesting. You say, I don't think it ever becomes a point where you're like, you got this. I think it just becomes a point where you just keep trying to refine it more and obviously shift with the market. Cause it's, you, you can't, it's not a, it's not a, uh, it moves, right? Everything moves. So you just got to stay in touch with kind of what things are doing. Obviously with interest rates going higher, if market stagnates, which I think it will in my area, because people don't need the fire sale stuff, then sale comps will stay the same, but will anyone trade anything in the next year and a half? I don't know. But in terms of other markets where maybe things shift, you have to stay up to date on it. Otherwise, your analysis of what's going on might be completely off, right? There might be a rent drop. There might be, okay, the vacancy is a little higher here because people are moving out of the city because it's too expensive. So there's always things to stay in touch with. But if you stay on top of kind of what you're doing, I, I think that's helpful. And it's funny you bring this up because my friend was like, oh, do you see what's going on in England? Do you see what's going on over here? And I'm like, no, I can tell you what's going on in Northwest Indiana real estate though. So it's, I don't know. I'm just like dialed in on kind of what I do every day. And I, and it, you're one know, thing. Yeah. People do, obviously people want to learn about other things, stuff like that. But I just kind of look at a couple things that I do a lot. And that's, I don't know. I feel like that's how I've learned um, my business basically just by doing it over and over again. You're a perfect example of, this is all pretty simple. It's not easy but it's pretty simple. Like just how you so nonchalantly just mentioned all of these terms about the rent rolls and everything about how you underwrite these deals and what you look at, what you don't look at because you've just done it so many times. It's become easy for you, but you're the type of person that I see a lot of people, like I said, on the show, and you're the type of person that just has that level 100 mindset. And then you're just kicking out strategies that just match your mindset. And because you view your mindset the way you do, like this is all very simple to you. And you're just like, this obviously makes sense. I'm just going to do this and then just become fabulously wealthy from it. It's the same way that I think about making this media company. I'm like, I want an eight-figure media company by December 1st, 2024. And this is how I'm going to do it. And it's simple for me. And it's simple for you. I can say where I got my mindset from because I've thought about it a lot. Where have you gotten your mindset from and like, how have you cultivated this? Because it's like 80% of this. So cultivated my mindset into... In terms of believing... So I need you to realize that you're not normal. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like you're not a normal... Like you're not a normal person because a normal person would be like freaking out over going from one unit to four units the next year to eight units the next year, they'd be freaking out. But you weren't like that. You were just like, oh, of course, I'm just going to go to 40 units. Oh, of course, I'm just going to get 100 more units. Oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to get to 400 units. So what do you think was the differentiator like that made you just dumb enough to believe in yourself? I think uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think the differentiator for me is a lot of people think 100, a lot of people think 500 is a lot. I think 125,000 units is a lot. So to me, like I'm just starting, I want to own 20 billion plus dollars of real estate. And to me, that's where my head's at. That's where I'm going to be like, yeah, that, that might, and it's not even enough, right? You just want to keep growing anyway, but that's my long-term, I'm 90 years old goal is that number. And I think a lot of it is if you can believe that you can do something, then and whatever you believe you can do, that's probably going to be the barrier for you. If you're like, hey, I believe I can own 100 units one day, you might never get there. You might hit 50, but that's going to be that barrier of this is what I can do, right? So I always 
tell people, I'm like, if you can't even believe in a goal or a dream for yourself, that's just massive. It doesn't make sense. Like we're not even like taking action towards it initially. We're just like thinking, okay, this is what I want. And some people can't even like, like we can't fathom the universe expanding. Sometimes people can't fathom that's my long-term goal. And it's just interesting to me where I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanted. If I don't reach 125,000, that's completely fine. But that's what I want. And I don't understand why other people would want to also be like, yeah, I want huge goals and dreams and, and hit stuff like that. So to me, I think that's my differentiator is I just, I'm not the 500 is not many, but I'm like, yeah, I'm just getting started in this business right now. So have there been any crossovers between your professional tennis career and coaching career in the sport to what you've had today, like with the mindset and kind of the discipline and the work ethic parts? Have there I, been any crossover? Yeah, I think it's a, there's a ton of crossover for me personally, because sitting down and calling people for three hours, I'm like, yeah, I'm not in the gym beating myself. And I'm not like seven hours on a tennis court plus gym it's not easy up at 5am, like running around. I'm like, wow, I put way more effort into that to make a hundred bucks when I lost first round <laughs> at a professional tournament than I ever have into real estate. So I'm like, I go on the treadmill now for 30 minutes. I'm like, this is tough, but you sit down and make calls for three hours. I'm like, this is nothing. So it's interesting you say that, but that was a lot harder than what I do now for sure. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is just from a work ethic perspective about you deciding that tennis was not your thing, even though I'm making an assumption that was something that you were probably like born into, correct? Where you like came up through academies and did all that to be able to be good enough to get the collegiate because that's how it was for my girlfriend. Yeah. So not so much academies, but obviously training five hours a day, coming out of school early, leaving early on the week, like Friday, Thursday for tennis tournaments, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was a full, and it didn't come from my parents actually playing. I was a chubby little kid and they were like, you better pick a sport. They watched some tennis on TV. I was like, that one looks easy. So I'll just try that one. And so happened to be that I was like, okay, at the time. So they're like, yeah, maybe he should get into like more tournament play, that kind of stuff. And I think whenever I do something, I get a little obsessive about it. So I ended up getting pretty good, came here for college, played pro. But whenever I do something, I like to be the best at it. And I just could sense that obviously it's just different tiers, different levels. And for me to hit that kind of top 10, top 20 in the world level, I don't think I had what it took. And I didn't want to be floating around 50 to 100 for a few years that just wasn't in it for me. So I got out of that, got into coaching and then just tried to really figure out what I wanted to do next. That was going to be my next question is at what point did you determine that getting up to that top one or top 10 position in tennis wasn't worth it? Because here's why I'll back this up a bit. Here's why I'm applying all of this, because for me, like I understand where my draft comes from because I accomplished like a big goal. Like my goal was to be the top sales rep in a company, like a national company. And I hit that goal. So I was like that top 10 position of where I wanted to be and like where I wanted to go. And so you and I are cut from the same cloth in that context. But then you had a you had this massive goal that you were working like over a decade to hit. And then you were just like, you, you didn't hit it. And then you just said, hey, like this isn't something that I want to do. But now you're applying that same tenacity to this new goal. So I'm just trying to use this to dissect. So now for this new goal of real estate, is this going to be your thing where you want to be that top 10% or top 1% now in this? Yeah, correct. Basically, I looked at the multifamily charts of real estate and the top company is about 110,000 units right now. So 125,000 kind of accounts for them buying a few more here over the next six I fucking (laughs) knew you looked that up. That's exactly why I was asking that. I knew that you would know who the top person is. 
I knew that you know who the top company is. Oh my God. That's awesome. So you think it's a bit competitive for you? I'm a very competitive person. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I'm pretty competitive when it comes to that kind of stuff. So what are your drivers? Is this an economic driver for you? Or do you think it's internally not a bad competition, but like business in general? Because this is fun for me to dissect you right now for all these people listening, because this is interesting. So for business in general, do you think it's more so that healthy competition that you got that itch scratched in tournament play and now you could apply that here? Is it more of an economic driver for you? Is it more something for your family and creating a life for your family? Is it D, all of the above? What is it for you? So I wouldn't say competition because I really can't put myself in any league close to those top companies right now. So I wouldn't say it was that aspect of it. I think it's more so the aspect of just achieving my full potential. That may be like, I don't want to look back and be like, oh, could have done a lot better. I want to look back and be like, I gave it everything. I And so be it happened or didn't happen. I can't say that I didn't try my best. I don't want to wake up one day and be like, I just didn't try my best. What could have happened if, and the long term, obviously you want to give a lot of money back. You want to help a lot of people. Can I leave a mark here on this world? I don't know. I'd like to, but I don't want to wake up one day, like I said, and be like, Maybe I could have helped a bunch of people if I had just tried a little harder on my end. So I, I just don't want that hanging over me when I'm older. So I just, and again, I love what I do. It's not something that I wake up and I'm like, man, got to go call some people today. Or man, got to go look at these numbers over here. That's not, does it, like I love waking up doing that. So I'm not doing anything I don't want to do, I guess, is also the second part of that. So we talk a lot about the deal triangle when it comes to real estate. So we talk about you you need to be one or two parts of a triangle. You either be the knowledge, the money, or the hustle when it comes to this. And it sounds like you really want to be and really enjoy being the deal flow. So it sounds like you're like the knowledge and the hustle part. Is there going to be a part, a point where you start bringing in other partners to get their money and source their money to make this a bit easier for you to scale up? You know what? I've thought about it. There's a lot of people who want to give me money to put in deals just with obviously the returns I've had and the deals I find and and purchase. So there is that aspect to it. Eventually, maybe I will take that on. I don't feel like dealing with a syndication right now. If I was going to do it, it would probably be minimum 500,000 or something or a million. I'd make it high. So it would only be a couple people, but um, there is that aspect to it. Eventually, obviously to get to that number, I'm never going to get there just using my own money. It's impossible. So there will be that factor of it. It's just a matter of kind of when I look to do it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. So right now you are sitting at 497 units. What's the game plan over the next couple of years? Game plan next couple of years. Next year, I do want to try and buy a thousand units. So that would put me at 15 and then try and hit around 3,000 or 3,500 when I'm 30. So that's my kind of short term two-year goal. So we'll see what happens on those two. Man. So what do you, so right now we're sitting here. What do you spend? What do you spend $110,000 a month on? You just reinvest it back into the business? <laughs> yeah, more deals. <laughs> just really saving. My savings rate, I live in a 200K condo. So that costs me about 1100 bucks with utilities and the mortgage payment. So I think my savings rate, obviously due to bonus appreciation and cost savings, like 94% of my state tax is 3.75. So yeah, I got to be sitting at 94% savings. <laughs> yeah so i can understand how you're still doing this with your capital now oh my yeah. god and then so who is your team who's your team comprised of right now that you're having to actively manage um so i have a director of the property management company that manages all my stuff i have his assistant and then five maintenance guys okay so most of it's just outsourced to the property management company yeah they handle 
basically everything. Yeah, and I wouldn't call it so much a property management company. I would call it like if, if you ever look at like three hundred unit complex, right? You got a staff there. Yeah. Staff me, and so it, it's more like that. It, it's just a typical staff on on a property. Yeah. So does so do they like manage that all together as like a package deal, or they handle like the maintenance? They handle that all in house, like with them, and then yeah, they handle back basically. To you? Yeah, they handle basically everything. How did you pick that partner? What do you mean in terms of? Like, so that's a pretty big deal to have that one person to be like, okay, this person, as opposed to other people to manage all of my properties, because then that's a key player. Oh, so I'm just sure. curious about what went into picking them as opposed to other people. Yeah. So my director, who, so I, I have the final say basically, obviously on leasing pricing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in terms of decision-making, when it comes to, I don't know, what needs to happen maintenance-wise, I'll let him kind of handle that. But he's actually a good buddy of mine. I've known him for a couple of years now. He was working at Northern Trust, a bank, finance major. He's 25. Good guy. He owns like 10 units himself. But uh, just a great guy, wants to work hard, really good at what he does, really good at leasing, really good at collections, that kind of stuff. So I thought he was perfect for the role. So I told him, hey, man, if you want to jump aboard – Cause he's sitting there with his W two behind a desk too, nine to five. I'm like, hey, jump, jump ship, come and work for me, do this stuff, and that's all. Hopefully, he's director of the company at every point, no matter what size is. Keep moving him up. So it all comes back to relationships and cold calls. Yeah, yeah. actually, you know what's funny? I found him because he messaged me on Facebook on a duplex I had listed. This was like three years ago for rent, like twelve fifty. And he was like, hey, do you want to sell the duplex? I'm like, sure. What are you going to give me? He's like, what do you want to sell it for? I'm like, that, that's not how this works, man. You told me. <laughs> do I want to sell it? You want to give me a price? I'm like, that's, uh, I'm not going to tell you a price. I didn't want to sell it anyway, but it was like a picture of like an old lady. I'm like, let me guess. That's your mother's Facebook. You just graduated and you're trying to like house hack something. He was like, yeah, that's exactly right. So I was like, let me help you out here. I'll help you buy something. I'm a licensed agent. So I hit it off. I helped him buy a duplex in Munster. He lived in one half, rented the other half. So from there, we just hit it off as good friends. Uh, he got real good at the kind of management side of stuff. And then obviously this year about around, uh, when was it? Like, April, he jumped out of what he did and came over to doing this stuff. At what point do you think you're going to make some type of... Let me rephrase the question. At what point do you think that you're going to more so enjoy, take time to actually enjoy the money that's coming in and like actually feel feel the money that's coming in? Because right now so, you're at 110000 and that's going to go up faster. It's going to be 500000 It's going to be a million before you know it. So at what point do you get like marginal utility of that? So I think pe- people love phrasing this question multiple different ways. What do I do for fun with this? When I drive to a complex, I buy there's nothing more fun. That is the ultimate u- enjoyment of the money is to save it, <laughs> to buy something else. Like right now I'm in talks on a 300 unit and I was looking at the map of it yesterday. I actually went and did like a self tour. You can let yourself in. It's like a you know, potential, like going to lease it out. So over there checking out yesterday for an hour and a half, looking around. To me, that is the max enjoyment of my money. Like putting a Ferrari outside my front door is not going to make me happier than buying a building or those kind of things. So to me, I am enjoying it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's that, that to me, that's enjoyment of my money. But I also think it goes hand in hand with that. That's when people think I've gone a long way. I think that's why I am where I'm at because that's what I like to do with the money. And that's what I just love doing. Like people who tell me, oh, I want to buy this or be on a beach or do that. I'm like, if that's the end goal, then are you really doing something you love to get that? I don't know. If you're not, you're probably not going to get that. That's just not how it works. Like typically people yeah. do very well. Like I can tell you love podcasting. Like you just love it. Yeah. So <laughs> that's my thing. 
Yeah, exactly. So people who do very well at something typically love what they do. You didn't think, let me do this to then be able to travel. You're like, that's a side effect of me loving this is I'm good at it and I can now travel. But people listen, if you want to do something, find something you love first to be able to have that kind of end result. But you can't start with that end result in mind. Yeah, same thing with me. Because before I was investing in real estate, I've got four units. I was at the beginning stages of where you were. I was doing the exact same thing. And I was about to move up into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and kind of keep doubling it. And I kept trying it. And then I tell people like, pay attention to your body and pay attention to what feels light versus what feels heavy. So for you, like cold calls felt light. Like that's something that you're able to spring out of bed and do. Whereas most people find that to be heavy and they procrastinate and they push it off. And I found that real estate investing was, I was procrastinating and I was pushing it off. I was pushing off the next property. And then I picked up a podcast mic. And then I was like, okay, cool. I know that I'm going to be wealthy one day and this is my vehicle to do it. And I will still invest in real estate, but I'm going to just do huge deals and huge chunks of money as opposed to doing the small deals, like you said, where it's like... 400 units, just the same amount of effort as a 40 unit. But uh, dude, I appreciate you coming on. That's a great point you bring up though. I think that's great for people to hear that just starting there, you found something else that you love doing. So, And it's trial and error. Like Same thing with you in tennis. Same thing. Like You picked it up. You were like, okay, cool. I'm going to do this thing. But then you were able to cut bait and you were able to say, okay, cool. This is not my thing. And I tell people like life is not a four course dinner. Like life is just like the food court at a mall. You're walking around, you're trying to sample in different things. And then that's how you figure out what your thing is. And as soon as you find that one, that teriyaki chicken at that one spot in the mall, then you just keep going back there. And that's your thing. But yeah, uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's not often I get to interview someone that's like very fresh on the podcast, doesn't have pre-programmed answers. So this was interesting for me to dissect your brain. So I appreciate it, man. Thanks for doing this. I know. Thanks for having me on, Brian. It It was awesome. Appreciate it. If people are looking to get to know you, communicate more, connect with you, where can they find you? I'm happy they can reach out by email. Just first name, last name, three at gmail.com. Like you said, I'm really not that big on social media. So maybe you shoot me a Twitter DM. I just got on there, but I don't really use it too much. Perfect. And then I will put that in the show description as well. And I'll throw your website in there for the heck of it. Just so they can see a nice little headshot right there. But I appreciate it, man. It's super helpful. So yeah, if they want to use my website, Rawstone Capital, com they can shoot me a message on that too perfect this has been awesome man this has been it's been ferris and brian with the action academy podcast signing off